Welcome to the Emerging Women Podcast, where we hear from brilliant women leaders creating big change in the world. I'm Chantal Pirat, your host and CEO of Emerging Women, and my guest today is Lisa Wimberger, founder of the Neurosculpting Institute. Lisa researched neuroscience and created the practice of neurosculpting to heal herself from a trauma you have to hear to believe. It starts with being struck by lightning and gets weirder from there. Since then, she's brought the practices and process of self-directed neuroplasticity to help everyone from street police to working professionals down-regulate negative patterns of chronic or traumatic stress. Today, we'll talk about why the brain makes patterns and scripts and how neurosculpting can help you renegotiate the ones that no longer serve you. We discuss fear and free will and how to make memory an expansive fuel instead of a limiting cage. Lisa also shares two simple practices to get your brain and body communicating as they work together to repattern your stress response. Lisa will also be giving a workshop, Neurosculpting for Leadership in the Zone, at Emerging Women Live 2017 in Denver, Colorado, October 5th to the 8th. I hope you can join us. It's going to be a wonderful event. Until then, please enjoy this podcast and interview with the wonderful Lisa Wimberger. Okay, hello and welcome, Lisa Wimberger. How are you? I'm so great and so happy to be here. How are you? I'm so happy to be talking to you. This is going to be so much fun. I love the name of your work, Neurosculpting, and I feel like, you know, aside from going to the gym every day, I would really like to be doing this every day. (laughs) Yeah, I do it every day. Yes, and I want to hear about that. I'm thinking the best way to start, because there's a lot of material here, and I'm just wondering if even this is end up being two podcasts, but maybe we could start with your story and how you came into this work, and then we can learn a little bit more about, or a lot more about what you mean by neurosculpting. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, You know, as a child, I was very prone to um, the freeze response during stress. So as, as beings, we have access to fight, flee, freeze whenever we're scared, nervous, or threatened. And we have access to all of them, all three of those responses at any given time. And sometimes we get scared and go, and breathe in and hold our breath. That's freeze, and it's normal. And sometimes we punch first and ask questions later, depending on the context. But as a child, I was always really predisposed to freeze. For some reason, I liked to go quiet. I liked to... Um, not like to, I actually just defaulted to going quiet and getting really, really small when I was scared. And this is normal, except when I was 15 on my birthday, I got hit by lightning. And I got hit in the base of the spine and uh, kind of was in a little shock, didn't really believe it happened, but everyone who was with me was, you know, very concerned and, um, worried about the fact that I had been hit and I just really didn't buy the story. I didn't believe it. 
But that summer, shortly after that, that incident, I started having black, what I thought were blackouts. I thought I was fainting. And um, over time, these fainting spells got much worse, really hard to recuperate from. They happened without cause that I could determine. They just sort of came up out of the blue and would level me. So by the time I was in my 20s, these things were hitting a couple times a year where I would lose consciousness, but I would wake up in a puddle after not knowing how long I had been out. Usually, I, you know, I would wake up and think, you know, did I, did I urinate? Did I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know where I am. I can't move my muscles, and my body would be just racked with pain. You know when you have... You've sat on your leg for too long and, it, and it's asleep and you stand up and you've got the oh, pins yeah. and needles. Yeah. Right. So that's what it would feel like, but throughout the whole body. And I would be nauseous to move and sometimes I couldn't hold my bowels or sometimes I'd throw up. And I had no idea what this was and I definitely did not want to tell anybody about it. And so I kept it very quiet. And sometimes I'd wake up with black eyes or stuck wedged between the toilet bowl and the, the bathtub once and just really no ability to understand what was happening. Well, about 15 years into these episodes. Oh, my goodness. I, wait, wait, right? stop. 15 I, years you didn't tell anybody? No, I actually, when they first started, they ha- once or twice they happened in front of um, people. And my parents knew I was fainting. And they took me to a doctor when I was 17, and they, the doctor said, oh, she's hormonal or she's not, you know, doesn't have enough salt in her diet or something. Oh, geez. And they didn't really know what was going on. So often these happened when I was alone. So no, I didn't tell anybody because I just didn't, I was very good at denial. I just was like, oh, this happened, and I'm not going to say anything. So when I was 30, I was in a doctor's exam and I happened to very fortuitously have one in his, in his exam room. And I woke to this horrified look on his face. And I, and that's when I got my diagnosis. I said, did I pass out? And he said, pass out. And he was holding a needle of atropine in his hand and atropine resuscitates a stopped heart. Right. And I looked at him and I could barely talk. And he said, you flatlined. You had a full seizure and flatlined. Your heart stopped. You stopped breathing. You were turning blue, and I was about to resuscitate you. And I was in total um, shock, and I said, what's the puddle? And I'm, here I am again waking up in this puddle, and he said, that's from seizures. When you have these tonic paralytic seizures, your whole body gets rigid and torques and, and twists in. And you use all of the energy in your muscles, which is why you can't walk for hours. Like, I couldn't even get out of the bed for four hours. I had to lay in his office and, um, for hours. And he said, has this happened before? And I said, oh, my God, this has been happening since I was 15. And he said, you know, we're going to make sure you're not epileptic. Sent me to the hospital. My brain scans were fine. My heart scans were fine. So they did not call it epilepsy. But it didn't go away. And he told me it was stress and fear induced and that I had a very hyperactive uh, vagus nerve, which runs from the, the brainstem all the way 
you know, down to the base of the spine. It innervates all of the muscles and the organs. Um, I'm sorry, innervates all of the organs. And he told me it's hyperactive. It's a, it's, it's a hyperactive freeze response. Uh-huh. And I said, well, okay, I know I used to freeze as a child, but this is extreme. And hell, I've been a meditator since I was 12. How could I be stressed? None of this made sense. And so these kept, these were actually getting worse. And um, the last few I had were very severe. The, the very last one I had, I couldn't breathe on my own even after I came to. My husband had to keep like pushing on my chest and get me breathing because I just was not wanting to come back. And that's when I really said something's missing from my meditation practice. It's helping me cope but it's not healing me. What the hell? There's got to be something I'm missing. Maybe this is user error and I'm just really a slow learner. So I actually decided I was going to go study the brain and the cranial nerves that were making me have my episodes and start studying the way fear was commanding my central nervous system to have this response. And it was studying neuroscience that all these light bulbs went off and I said, oh my God, I could be manipulating my thoughts in such a strategic manner that I could probably go to the subconscious level and get rid of whatever fear story is there commanding me to freeze. I don't even, I don't even care what the story is, what the belief is, what the subconscious driver is. I don't even care. I just know that science just told me I could do this because we are neuroplastic and because we can self-direct that neuroplasticity. So that's where I got my first um, aha moment that I could heal myself and needed to because the last episode I had, if my husband wasn't there, I would absolutely not be here. So I started putting science to meditation and changing the process of how I meditated and making it, I practiced different structures to see what would allow me most control over subconscious patterning. And that's where neurosculpting came from. It came from these practice uh, test sessions I did with myself until eventually I found a method that enabled me to override my seizures. So I was able to override that halo that comes when um, when a seizure first starts. You get a halo. And it, in some people, it lasts a couple seconds, and in some people, it lasts less than that. And for me, it was maybe a second long. But I was practicing this new method of of going into my subconscious so much that eventually when a halo came, I was able to um, evoke a different response in a fraction of a second and interrupted my first seizure in, you know, at that point it had been 20 something years. And, and that's when I said, Oh my God, I need to take this out to people in trauma. And that's when I started taking it out to the world. And that was back in 2007. So I was my own litmus test and I passed. So that's kind of where it came from. 
And since that, since you've started it, you, I mean, first of all, that's just incredible. And I love hearing the story. I didn't know it was that long that you had kept this a secret. So that's remarkable. And, but since then, you've taken it out into some pretty sort of conventional places. Can you talk a little bit more about who's using this? And like, I know you've been working with police officers and people in the court system. And so let us hear about that. Yeah, I am. So, so the moment I was able to interrupt my seizure, I realized I could take this to high trauma. So I approached back in 2007, the Denver police department. And I, I, you know, I did some research on the industry. I had, this came from a personal story. I, I watched my cousin who was NYPD destroy his family. And I had to work with my, um, you know, my, my young cousin to help him deal with his father's vicarious stress. And so in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, gosh, if I could get these really powerful meditative tools to his father, I wouldn't have to help the son. And so that was around the same time that I had really my breakthrough with my seizures. So I just said, you know, where could this help? And I was thinking of my own family and I thought, cops, cops need this. And it was kind of this drive to go help officers mostly because I saw the, the effect of unchecked stress in, in what that does to an officer's family. So I approached Denver Police Department and, um, you know, gave them a pilot program for one day. And I said, let's try this. Let's just see what happens. And they said yes. And they gave me 30 officers for eight hours, and the the response was overwhelming, far exceeded what I had hoped. Um, they they, I had officers coming up to me afterwards, crying and saying, "This could have saved my family. This could have prevented me from having to go to court for um for abuse, you know, abuse and for reckless endangerment of civilians." I mean, there's a lot. Yeah. of bad stuff that, that's happening with, with officers. Obviously, and, we, we know what's happening out there. Right? And, yes. and, and they don't have any tools to deal with it. So right. this was a tremendous, um, well, it was a tremendous breakthrough that an agency would even let a civilian in with such an alternative radical program back in 2007 before any officer was ever on a magazine cover in Lotus position. Exactly. You know, so... They let me in, and, and I think part of their willingness to let me in was I did not say the word meditation ever. You know, I, I'm, I was very strategic with my language. It was tactical, emotional survival training. Uh-huh. And so they were very receptive because I, I think I spoke to them where they were at. And after that, it, it just got accepted. So I, I went back as a consultant for Denver police department a few times over the next couple of years. And from there, I went into six other agencies in the front range and then state patrol and then out to Minnesota to, um, to some uh, agencies around Minneapolis and then to state patrol in Iowa. And, and just most recently last week to Rockville, Maryland police department, where I get to go into agencies and teach them these powerful regulatory skills so they can downregulate from whatever stress is happening, whether it's just mental or even physical, they're, they're just um, dangerous 
when their nervous system is full and they don't know how to downregulate. And, and so I started, interestingly, in high trauma, and it didn't occur to me until about 2011 that, oh, the general public might want some of this too. So I had already been working with officers for about five years before I started really doing public workshops. I mean, I, had, I was building a private practice, but it wasn't until about 2011 that I said, oh, you know, maybe, maybe people with normal levels of stress could also benefit from this. And so the Institute emerged at that time. And since then, it's gone to us working with traumatic brain injury with great success, spinal cord injury. I mean, we have a case study who is absolutely blowing our minds. And she's a quadriplegic and we're getting her movement back in her fingers just through neurosculpting, through reestablishing a mental connection between her motor maps and her physical body. And this is all documented on video on YouTube. So it's amazing to see what is happening with these techniques, everything from chronic pain to depression management to spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury. I mean, it's astounding me. It's, it's actually blowing my mind, really. Yeah, and and I know that, you know, we have been talking because I feel like this kind of work with feminine leadership and women's leadership and dealing with some of the obstacles, the internal stories that women can carry with us when we're stepping out and stepping up that may be holding us back, that this kind of work would be just, I mean, I can't even imagine going in, in the leadership direction without doing some of this work. So it would be indispensable. Absolutely. I mean, when you think of the stories we carry as women, we carry the ancient story of caregiver, right? I mean, all of us carry that in our DNA, whether we're mothers or not, that's in our DNA because we have ovaries, you know? I mean, so that's written in to the storyline. But then you look at the last 100 years, practically globally, and we carry a very new story, which is we're provider. And that comes with a collective set of unknowns that we are just now feeling the, the results of and unfolding with them. We've adopted as women an entirely male story as part of who we are. And we as a, as a species or as a gender, I should say, are really recalibrating to that. And that comes with so many unknowns and so many expectations and so many opportunities to either perceive we've succeeded or failed. And those stories absolutely have an effect on our being, our spirit, our mind, and our physical health. And until we have a tool to get into the subtle layers of what those stories are doing to us, then we just get thrown around like we're on this wave and we have no control. And some women rise to the top either fortuitously or because innately they just can navigate this. And some women are completely confused by who we're supposed to be right now in, in this moment. And these tools are indispensable for women to step into their power with clarity and without ego. Yeah. You talk in your book, uh, your most recent book, that is, about rescripting. 
I'd like to dig into that and then and how, you know, on one hand, we want to be open to the universe and, you know, allow ourselves to be directed in a way that has divine purpose. But on the other hand, we do have free will and we do have the opportunity through this practice to reframe. And I'm curious to see if that might be a good segue into learning a little bit more about the work. Absolutely. So when I say script, what I really mean is a pattern. Yeah. And we are products of patterns. The brain's job is to create efficient patterns, efficient patterns that don't have to be thought about, that we can automate so that we can have the um, energy resources to learn something new because we've already stored what we've learned. So if you think of a baby learning to use his or her little hand, there's a lot of, there's months of analysis and mental processing that goes into understanding this is my hand and I can move it and I can control it. I mean, if you've ever watched an infant grab something with intention for the first time, you see how how wide-eyed they are realizing this is mine. Now, imagine that we couldn't create a script for that. We'd have to relearn that in each and every moment. Do you know how hard it would be to grab your coffee if you had to take two months to process, this is my hand, and I can actually grab that cup of coffee? That's absolutely insane. So what the brain does is it takes all of this focused energy that we just spent learning something and it stores that pattern. So that pattern no longer has to be thought about. It's automated and it's retrievable so that eventually I can build my skills further. So I eventually, not only do I learn that I can grab something, but I might be able to learn how to play the piano with super fine dexterity and and amazing speed. That's all because those stepping stone patterns were stored and then retrieved when I needed them and used as the new baseline to evolve from. We do the same thing with our beliefs. So our beliefs follow the same neurological process as any other script. So if I'm this young girl being raised in a family that assigns me a role, maybe the role is, you're, you know, you're supposed to be submissive or um, you're not worth it. Whatever my story is, and we all have stories. I create patterns around those stories and those patterns become scripts. Some of those patterns are the way I hold my body. You know, if I, if I grow up feeling unloved, I may curve in. I may curl in and adopt a physical stance. That's one kind of patterning. Another kind of pattern that we automate is the way we shy away or avert our gaze if we're feeling unworthy. And another pattern might be the way I end up in the same type of abusive relationship. So we're automating patterns on top of patterns based on subconscious beliefs or scripts and conscious beliefs and scripts. Mm -hmm. And as women, we just established we have a ton of those. So with a tool that could enable you to say, you know what, first of all, I'm not broken, I'm efficient. Okay, this takes some of the judgment out of the equation. We don't have to beat ourselves up for being broken women. We can just say, oh, look how efficient we are. I must have some old 
deficient stories or patterns that need to be reworked. So we can go in with tools, mental focus and meditation techniques to uncouple our attachment to those scripts. We don't even need to know what the scripts are. All we need to know is I'm contracting. Okay, so we go into a neuroscoping meditation where we guide your thought process through a different entrainment in the brain, and then we take that moment of contraction and we have you move through it so it's no longer something you're stuck in. It's something you have a script about that says, I moved through it, and that's the script you store. And suddenly that's the script that we use the next day to build upon. I move through contraction. And then we add a layer to that in an entrained mental environment. And that layer is not only do I move through it, but I thrive afterwards. Uh And then that's the new story we layer in. And so what we do is we teach people how to layer stories. We're not teaching people how to direct their lives so specifically that they can't be open to the divine mission they have on this planet or inspirational source. What we help them do is wire and and train to being open and not contracted so that whatever new story wants to show up, we have the expansive capacity to recognize that and not contract because an old pattern says, I'm not worthy. And so we layer that's what the brain does. It layers. And what we do with neurosculpting is we learn the language of that layering and through mental and training that we show people, how do you do this? Beautiful. So where does your emphasis on free will come from here? Well, this actually comes from my um, vehement opposal to what science is showing us currently. So, I love science. Obviously, it saved my yes. life. But yes. I also love faith and, and belief in magic because that's also saved my life. So what science is showing us right now technically is that we don't have free will. And how they're showing us that through neuroscience is by saying, look, if you want a piece of cake, we can measure that your action towards grabbing that cake actually happens measurably sooner than your thought or your desire to have the cake. So science is showing us that our automated actions happen before even some subconscious thought or craving. And they're using that to say, see, you don't have free will. You're just, you're just an automaton. You think you're grabbing the cake because you have a desire for it, but you actually have a desire for it because you recognize you started grabbing it. And they're kind of using this, this data to make us very robotic. And, and so my emphasis on free will comes from the fact that I, I don't believe what science is saying. I don't believe we don't have free will. I don't believe that I'm justifying every action because it's just happening because I'm on autopilot. I believe that I can direct my actions. And I believe this because I had an autonomic nervous response to fear that should not be controllable by my desire or my will. But it was my desire and my will that enabled me to find a solution 
and stop that process. So I think science doesn't see the whole picture. I think it negates spirit. I think it negates desire as anything measurable. So therefore, it doesn't measure it. And it only measures neurological um, events. And neurological events only show a piece of the picture. So science says we don't have free will, which is also why they say artificial intelligence can learn from itself and eventually be equivalent to human capacity. I don't believe this to be true, mostly because of my own experience. And I think, you know, if I did believe it to be true, I would not be empowered. I would be victim. Right. And so anything that supports a victim mentality is something I challenge. Right. Nice. You talk about fear, and I'm curious to see how we can use this perspective on free will to work with the various fears that come up in our lives. You know, a lot of us feel like our fears are primal, which, I mean, technically they're being um, expressed from a very primitive part of the brain. Um, And I think because we think they're primal, we may also think we can't overcome them. You know, fear of spiders and snakes is really primal. And a lot of us may feel, well, that's impossible to overcome. Uh, but then we, we kind of expand that out into, oh, fear of being in social situations because of that time in kindergarten where I, you know, had this embarrassing accident. Well, that's so old now, it's also primal, so therefore I can't get over it. My fear of public speaking, my fear of, you know, my mortality, whatever these fears are that we have, we have practiced and rehearsed them so much that sometimes they feel so beyond our free will, they feel like just a part of who we are. And that also is a bit of a victim trap. Because we can actually go into any layer of fear and sculpt it differently. I'm not saying we can eradicate it. But what I'm saying is any of it can be renegotiated in terms of how we relate to it. Mm. So there's always an opportunity to relate to it differently, which eventually can soften the way it limits us. When I, when I think of Dr. Joe Bolte Taylor, who is this amazing neuroanatomist who suffered that stroke that annihilated the left hemisphere of her brain. And in her eight years of recovery and rewiring, literally bringing her left hemisphere back online, what she experienced was that things she thought were inherent personality traits, things like preference for color and taste and attitude were actually choices. And as her left hemisphere came back online, in her book, she notes that she chose different responses so she could have a different relationship with those things. And she actually reprogrammed her her deepest personality traits, which many of us say, well, that's just who I am. And a lot of this comes from fear. You know, fear undermines so much of how we show up. And sometimes there's a great motivator for how we show up. But we rehearse these responses so much that they become these default programs. And we say, oh, that's just who I am. And, and that's simply not true. Mm-hmm. 
you talk a little bit about epigenetics and how some of these things actually may be choices that we've made or inherited by circumstance, but a lot of them may just be inherited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what science is now discovering is that what one experiences in her lifetime doesn't just affect her. It can actually change the way her genetic code expresses itself, which can then be inherited by the child, which can then become a trait passed down to further um, generations. So, and we're, they're seeing this in men too. They're seeing men with certain lifestyles and diets not only affect their bodies and their own sperm count, but affect the construct of their sperm, which then expresses a whole other set of genetic code in their um, unborn child. When, when they eventually fertilize an egg, that child is expressing code that was turned on in that man's life, lifetime based on his lifestyle and food. We are making changes to our heritable information at the gene level based on our relationship to the world in this moment. It does not stop with our body. So this is powerful. And what's determined in in all these studies done with identical twins, where one expresses schizophrenia and the other doesn't, and they find that it's nurture and nature um, and environment that has made the difference. So they've both got the exact same genetic code. But one will express disease and one will not. And the one that doesn't express disease, we're now finding, doesn't pass on the disease gene. This is such powerful information. So this then, then you look at culturally as women, what are the stories we collectively agree? Exactly. What are the ones we want to keep? And what are the ones that have limited and contracted us And what can we do right now in our physical bodies, not just for us, but for the way the generations to come evolve? We have evolutionary power in our brains, in our spirits, in our ovaries, in the eggs, in our DNA, and we have massive influence over this. Yeah. Yeah, that's what's exciting about it. That's what's motivating about making this actually a practice because I mean we are inheriting millenniums of epigenetic history where we are not really thriving let's say I mean I'm trying to put it in the best light but to have the opportunity here to outcreate that is phenomenal I mean and it's science actually yeah not only is that exciting but that's that's magic I mean we literally we have magic when you think we can choose the epigenetic stories we hold on to and we can choose the ones we let go of and change our genetic code. This is the stuff of science fiction. And, you know, we may have believed this in our hearts and our spirits before where we said, you know, be a good person now and the karma will ripple down. Right. But or- now science is saying this is really happening and and so now those of us who needed that little extra piece of proof, well, now we have it. Now none of us have an excuse. Yeah. None of us. 
Yeah. And I like it. It's a little bit deeper than just simply affirmations because we're really working the brain and paying attention to our, our responses and our physical responses and, you know, how we're adapting. What are the, what's the imagery that we're working with? And it's really, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to say something about affirmations because I both love them and hate them. <laughs> I know, right? Okay. I want, I want to tell you a little bit about that. Um, yeah, they do work, but not the way we use them, not the way some of us use them. So for instance, let's say I have a very subconscious scripted pattern that says I'm unlucky, Right. Now, maybe this is not something I can articulate. Maybe it's not at the forefront of my, my brain, right? Now, I go to a law of attraction class, and these people say, oh, just make this beautiful vision board, put some affirmations up, and what do you want in life? And I say, I want a yacht. I want to be rich and live on a yacht. Fabulous. And I cut out these pictures, and I write these affirmations. I am rich. I am abundant. I live on a yacht. And I put them all over my house. But I haven't cleaned up the foundational subconscious script, which says I'm unlucky. So now I take all those images that I'm investing in, the yacht, the abundance, and I filter it through the the filter that says, but I'm unlucky. So now all of a sudden I go on a rafting trip and my, my kayak or my canoe or my raft has a hole in it and I sink. And here I am trudging out of the river with this, you know, deflated raft going, this is my yacht. Seriously, this is my yacht. Okay, this is what happens with affirmations. Until the foundation is cleaned up and reformed, the affirmations will get twisted or filtered or limited. And so in order for the affirmations to actually resonate, they have to gel with a foundation. So the affirmations come later. The foundation work comes first. Then the affirmations, they're powerful. And this is the love I have for them, which is, yes, they are powerful. Every word we speak is powerful if it aligns with our foundation. And every word we speak is contradictory if it doesn't. And that leads to cognitive dissonance, duality, and a sense of failure. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we started out talking about was the, you know, the power of story for better or for worse to reshape our patterns and shape our patterns from an early age. You talk about memory and reprogramming. Can you talk a little bit about that? How can we break through, you know, I call it in my family, we have a tendency towards revisionist history. That's what we call Mm -hmm. it. And I'm wondering if you can say more about how we can work with our memories in a more of a positive way and recognize the limitations of them. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, the scary, scary thing is none of our memories are accurate. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean they're not valid. It doesn't mean they didn't really shape who we are. It doesn't mean things of that nature didn't really happen to me. What it means is our relationship, our stored pattern of what we experienced is always subjective. So my memory of the thing that happened to me when I was a child is very subjective. And there are, there are a million other possibilities that I might not notice about that event because I'm filtering it through my, my subjective lens. I take that experience, and science really doesn't distinguish between memories and learned events. They're the same thing to neurology. 
So any learned event or script is a memory. Some of it's historical memory. Some of it's procedural memory, how to use an arm. Some of it is implicit memory. So, but it's all the same thing. It's all a script stored to be remembered. And so we, we have our memories and they mean something to us, but they mean something to us in a very one-sided way. And the ones that contract us, we would benefit greatly from by softening our relationship with them so that we no longer contract off a very one-sided experience. So, for instance, we have a memory from an event when we're young. We store it. Now, every single time we're in a situation even remotely similar to that, my brain, because it's efficient, wants to go get that script or memory so I now know how to behave in this current moment without too much thought. So my traumatic event with the spider when I was five is going to be automated so that when I'm eight and I see a spider on my pillow, I'm going to freak out just the same way. Uh Or even if I see something that might look like a spider, but it really isn't, I'm going to reach to that memory and it's going to cause me an automated response. But what's happening is every time we pull a memory, conscious or subconscious, out of our historical memory banks, what we're actually doing is reformulating it. It's not stored as one specific thing. It's stored as parts and pieces. So we have to reconsolidate it in each and every moment. And every single time we remember something, we're actually putting some pieces together and gluing them together with a current made-up narrative so it feels seamless which means when we go store that again, that's version two. And then there's version three. And then there's version Mm 5,670. And the memory you have today has been altered that many times every time you remembered it. So none of it is accurate to what happened in that moment because of the way we retrieve memories and use them. So if we now know... We've embellished in small or great ways this memory every single time it has inhibited us. Then what we'll work, this inhibition we're working off of is probably not even real or accurate. So what we do with neurosculpting is we help people pull the relationship they have to the memories, whatever version they're on, and start uncoupling from it. Because eventually what happens is we dismantle the charge of each of those versions. And sometimes people can even get to that core memory and change their relationship to it. And that is very powerful. If you ever, if you ever have gotten to that big revelation in your own life, you know how you can't not have that awareness once you have it. So when people get to that, I've renegotiated my relationship to this old limitation, this old fear, you can't not have that anymore. It's the newest version. You're liberated. You're empowered. And that's the newest version. And that's the one you retrieve next. So we're, we're, we're constantly sculpting. We just don't know we're doing it. Yeah, I mean, that's wonderful because, you know, I think just so many people have had trauma and and it's trauma is relative. I'm coming to discover for myself, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, and 
I do feel myself out creating in some ways some of the old memories. And part of me has always been like, why? Let's just stay in the present. Why am I still sourcing from the memories? But I just don't know if you can really shut that off. So this seems like the only way through. And you can shut it off. The reason you're sourcing it is because the brain created efficiencies around sourcing it. Right. So what you have to do is put time, investment, and practice into creating new sources, right. new memories, or renegotiated responses to old memories. So, And that takes time and practice. Here's the, these are the magic bullets. So everyone's looking for a magic bullet. Sure. Women want a magic bullet to you know stay looking young. Men want a magic bullet to stay, you know, virile and powerful. We all want a magic bullet for something. Here's the brain's magic bullet. Time plus practice plus focus equals self-directed neuroplasticity. It's not a pill. It's not going to happen because you did it once. So however many years of investment you put into your old stories, that was self-directed neuroplasticity. That's how strong they are. That's how strong you are. So you have to do the same thing to unwind that. But if you do it strategically, you can actually unwind it pretty quickly. And, you know, we have the capacity to make new memories in each moment. So not only can we soften our relationship to the old one, but we can use our minds to create new ones that we want to latch on to. And the, the one big overarching thing I want to say about memories because some people really, their memories are their identity. Sure. And it's something that's very important to them. So I want to say, whatever your traumatic memory is, I get that it's real. I don't devalue what happened to anyone out there at all. We all really were affected by the things that happened in our lives. But we have the ability to relate to those events differently. And that's where changing the relationships to memories comes in. So we're not talking about erasing our history. That means so much to us. We're talking about making that history become an expansive fuel rather than a limiting cage. Yeah. Freedom. Yes. One of the other areas in in your most recent book that I super appreciate is this connection between the mind and the body. I think a lot of times when we're talking about our thoughts and even the idea of neurosculpting kind of stays in the brain, but you actually do make a direct connection with the power of the body to be part of that process. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. So the brain communicates to the body through channels. But the body also communicates back up to the brain through channels. So it's a two-way street. The brain has to perceive, interpret, analyze, and respond to sensory perception. So that's body going up to brain. And then the body has to respond to impulses from the brain to move or react or to, you know, do something. So it's always a two-way street. And when we have limiting fear-based thoughts, we actually change the hormonal balance in our body. We do this because the hypothalamus in the brain says, uh-oh, threatening thought. I better respond. And so the body then does. And we move blood, oxygen, and glucose to, to muscles instead of organs. We elevate the heart rate. We have a body response of contraction to fear. Now, the opposite is true. If my body 
starts to breathe deeply or starts to slow the heart rate, that tells the brain everything is safe. So we can go in both directions. So in neurosculpting, there's always an acute awareness of the body during every meditation. And we're always going back and forth. What's the body doing now? Is the body contracting to the thought you're having? Let's now go lower our um, heart rate or let's go breathe more deeply or let's focus on that muscle and soften it. Let's focus on the ways in which the body is supported in this moment so that if we can make a slight tuning there, it'll go tell the brain we're okay. And so in neurosculpting, we're always going back and forth, brain telling body and body telling brain. Because when you increase this communication line between both of them, well, then you can either downregulate and expand through your thoughts or you can downregulate and expand through awareness of the body. You have more tools at your disposal when you know how they communicate to each other. So we never leave the body in neurosculpting meditations. In other meditations I have, I've floated away. Yeah. I've become very unaware of my body. And in neurosculpting, we let those moments happen, but then we always bring you back to legs, toes, breath, body, throat, head. What's going on? Where are you? Yeah, you have this part in the book, um, head, heart, and face. And I thought that was just mm -hmm. such an interesting way to recognize when we are in a contracted form, because sometimes we disas I disassociate to the point where I don't even know I'm contracted. But paying attention somehow to the face was very interesting to me. Can you elucidate a little bit more on that? Yes, the face and the muscles in the face are intimately connected to our most primitive orientation response, orienting response. So when we're in an actual threat the first thing we do is we'll turn the head and open the eyes wide or focus them narrowly to see something. This is, this is automatic. We, we tilt our heads so our ears will get more. Um, and so facial muscles are very connected to the most subconscious layers of detecting safety. So in, if you think about a baby, a baby's got nothing to go on except this big face staring at them, which is usually mom or dad. So faces have to mean something very quickly to a baby. They have to mean, am I safe or am I not? So because of that, then the baby's facial expressions start to mirror yeah. as a way to express safety or not. So if you want to know what's going on in your body, you can often look at your face. Are you frowning? Are your lips pursed really tight? Is your jaw clenched? What's going on in the corners of your eyes? Do you, are, are your eyebrows pinched together? It's difficult. It's really difficult to have a neutral face if you are not neutral. And the only people who can do that really well are like amazing pathological liars. And they develop that as a skill. But lie detectors read micro expressions on the face because the face doesn't lie. And so if you can tune into your face, you can tune into whether you feel safe or not. And, and even if you're in um, a situation that's mildly stressful, your lips will get tighter. You will change your mouth expression. You're going to change the, even the, how big your eyes are open, how wide open your lids are. Your pupil size is going to change. So um, – Face is fastest, especially for, you know, someone like me who is extremely expressive in the face. 
There's no hiding anything. And I can be in denial all I want. But if I look in the mirror, wow, okay, I see where I'm lying to myself. If you look at the lines on your face as you get older, you can tell when old people pass. You can tell by their face if they've lived happy lives or sad lives. Mm. It's marked. It's marked by the way they use the muscles constantly. So another quick way to sculpt is to change your facial expression. If you're in traffic, I love this exercise. If you're in traffic and you're annoyed, you'll, you'll feel it in the face. You'll see it on the face. If you bring to mind the most loving memory you've ever had, your face is going to instantly soften. You're going to start smiling probably, and the smile starts in the corner of the eyes, not the mouth. You're going to lift in the face, and what is going to happen is that new facial expression generated by a thought is now going to frame your experience of being in traffic, and eventually your ride to work will be far less negative because you actually changed your facial expression. Studies have been done with people reading negative passages of of literature, and if they put a pencil in their mouth and emulate a smile, they actually rate what they've read as less negative. So we're, we're evaluating the world through subconscious muscle expression in the face. So it's a huge barometer. Wow. Yeah, and almost an easy fix, it feels like. A nice quick, like yeah. you said, a quick way to, to outcreate something negative. or It's beautiful. Absolutely. In fact, this is so funny. I, I, I was taking an online course, and I loved the content, but the teacher had this intensely furrowed brow, and I couldn't, I couldn't take the class without doing the same thing. My, my face was just emulating his. And I realized that I was suddenly framing all the content as annoying. And I said, what, what's happening? I wanted to learn this. I love this. But because of his facial expression uh-huh. and me now inexplicably making the same one, I now don't want to learn this content. And I ended up quitting the course. And I thought, this is the power of what our expressions frame for us. And this is, this is also happening at every level of the body, the gut, the stamp, the shoulders, the chin, the way we make eye contact, it's all, this is a container for the spirit. And it's talking through it. And when it's not happy, that's a message for spirit. And so so the body has to be an integral piece of this. Yeah. Wow. There is so much here. And I'm so excited to just be working more closely with you and you being part of Emerging Women. I think that we're at the end and I, I have a request. If you could help our audience right now, if you had like one thought pattern or one power practice, I mean, you have so many guided audio practices and uh, practices for different specific things. But given our audience of emerging women, women really, you know, in leadership positions, in entrepreneurial positions, really setting fire to their lives, catalyzing their truth in an inward, outward way, what sort of meditation or focus or practice would you recommend for that particular audience? Yeah, I would say two things because I know we're out of time. So I want to give you the biggest bang for your buck. The first thing is pay attention to your face, change your facial expressions by evoking real thoughts that do that. 
and let your face help you move through the day differently. But the second one is to shake vigorously every day in the morning and at night, like shake your whole body because we don't even need to know our stories. If they're all bound up in our muscle contraction, then shaking helps dissipate the contraction and will signal to the mind, hey, we're done contracting. Everything must be okay now. So one of the fastest types of um, approaches, I think, is shaking. And you don't even need a meditation practice to do that. You just need a, a, a room that you can close the door in and shake wildly. Nice. I like that. I can do that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I Lisa. think everyone can do that. Yes, right? Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to more. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to help uh, bring tools to this amazing platform you have. Yes, well, there's certainly more to come here. Thank you so much, Chantal. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.